I want to highlight failing up, but also tightening feedback loops and having a sense of humility and being reflective. All of these pieces sort of add up to, well, if things don't work out, I do have information that's going to help me the next time. Hi, I'm Kristen Wisdorf. And I'm Libby Gladys. We're hosting the Tech Sales is for Hustlers special campus series. There are almost 5,000 colleges and universities nationwide, and only about 200 have dedicated sales programs. We are finding the leaders of those programs to get a behind the scenes look at how they're prepping the next generation of sales stars. Join us as we talk about their own career journeys, what advice they have for students considering a future in sales, and insights into what every student needs to know for a sales career. The Tech Sales is for Hustlers special campus series. Welcome back, Hustlers, to another episode of the Tech Sales is for Hustlers special campus series. I am your host, Kristen Wisdorf. And today joining me, I have Libby Galatis. Hey, Libby. Hey, Kristen. And today we're super excited. Libby and I are chatting with Christopher King, who uh, is a professor at Howard University. He's also an investment partner, an entrepreneur, a CEO. He is all of the above, all of the things. He's even a memory blue client, which is pretty exciting. Welcome to the podcast, Christopher. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to this conversation today. Yeah. Well, we like to start all of these chats with professors and on our podcast, just learning a little bit more about you. So Christopher, if you could answer the same question I actually ask all the students when I interview them, which is tell me about you. Take 60 seconds and just give us the the background of Christopher King. Sure. Uh, I could take that so many different directions. I started a, a journey of creating my own company after working in ed tech sales at a charter management organization. It was a dream job, if that's a thing. And we ended up reorganizing ourselves to, to support charter schools and HR and finance. And I thought to myself, well, teachers don't care about that at all. <laughs> what they care about is the students that they work with. And for me, that meant figuring out how to build a closer relationship between the teacher and the student. And one of the major entry points for that was how we create more relatable content in schools. And as a former teacher myself, you know, I was constantly looking for resources. And of the three black men that worked at the school of a 98% black and brown school population, we were very much pulled between classrooms to talk about our lives and, and just listen to the students. You know, I also sort of informed this approach through uh, relational organizing training that I went through as a door knocker in the labor movement, holding house meetings in rural Georgia, very much impressed upon me the importance of active listening and creating shared narratives to move people towards action. And the smallest of us, five, six-year-olds to 10-year-olds are no different. They want to relate and they want to create their own story, but they also want to hear yours too. And that's the, the thinking, some of the ethos behind Wham Academy, which is the current product that we're taking to market this year. Again, uh, we're excited to, to go ahead and create as much impact as we can throughout the country and the world. Okay, this is, there's a lot to dive into here. That's very exciting. So you were in EdTech sales, which is huge. It's a big part of our public sector practice here at Memory Blue. 
But I heard you say you were a door knocker in rural Georgia. Were you doing door-to-door sales? Like, what were you selling? Like, let's take it way back and start. Would love to. <laughs> let's talk like <laughs> college or pre and okay. post college, Christopher. Like, how you found your way as an early professional in school and just after school. Great stories there. I decided to study public policy in undergrad. Political science was entirely too theoretical. I was the change the world type. And what I wanted to sort of dig into is develop some skills around measurement and details and legislation and had some very impactful internship experiences back then. I interned at the Division of Budget in New York State and did a brown bag lunch with some of the elected officials and senior policy advisors. And they told me that if you want change, don't work here. And I took that to heart, right? Because I was excited to put on my suit and go to my internship and talk to people and get into the data and uncover stuff and create proposals. And the thinking there, just to be clear, was that the elected decides what they want. And then the bureaucrats create in-depth analysis to inform that opinion. But the change in government and in that public sector lane that we all play in now is very much subject to politics and subject to money and influence. This is pre-major tech innovation and large tech companies that, you know, the space. But I saw the writing on the wall at that time, and that led me to pursue the LSAT, which was an amazing experience for me. I'm sure nobody, very few people get on this broadcast and talk about how standardized tests were amazing for them. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Also, you'll probably hear the undercurrent of my message is uh, sort of obsessive optimism. You'll see me be able to make uh, lemonade out of every batch of lemons. And I say that because the LSAT, I learned a lot about myself. And I use that skill set later in law school and then in, in entrepreneurship. I can genuinely sit in a chair for 12 hours and work on something obsessively. And 12 would be modest in that context compared to the other things that I actually had to do along my journey, including working on the reelection campaign for Barack Obama in 2012 in Virginia, where there were about 10 of us who worked on a campaign that we love to say that changed the state, that changed the country, that changed the world, right? And that was due to that obsessive focus and some obsessive optimism. So going back to that story about undergrad and how that informed my work, the question that you asked is what were we selling? And I love the question because I had a visceral reaction to the word sales for a very long time. And Caroline and I have talked about this quite a bit. I got my start working after my failed tour in law school. I went out and I worked for SEIU and the organizer and training program. And they essentially, SEIU is the probably, arguably one of the most successful unions in modern labor movement history. And one of the things that we talked about often, and obviously you can fall on SEIU one way or another, that's not paramount to the story, but the idea is that we weren't selling anything. We were motivating people based on their self-interest to come together around shared affliction for a shared desired outcome. I know that's a mouthful, but essentially we were not offering them anything that they couldn't do themselves. We were facilitating a process for them to change their lives. And we were organizing low-income food service workers. My start was at Morehouse and Georgia Tech campuses against a major employer, one of the top five food service employers. And again, the company doesn't matter. But the idea is that 
I was actually leading house meetings and door knocking wow. workers who were incredibly disenfranchised mm. from their workplaces and meaning sick days were not plentiful. So you had people serving food and they were sick, minimal healthcare options, and then also no reasonable benefits for the jobs that they were working on. Their kids couldn't go to school at any reduced tuition costs at these flagship institutions in the Atlanta area. I cut my teeth there, then I, we stalemated a bit on those campaigns, went back to Brooklyn and worked on a, a similar campaign where drove 500 miles a week down to South Jersey and was organizing the K through 12 work, food service workers there. So that's when I, and I was also raised by educators and, yeah. and I'll tell you about teaching later. I've lived a couple of different lives, so this broadcast could go a little long, so I'm going to try to be concise. That was a very important experience for me. And I transitioned into teaching and operations work later on. So you got your start or did you, were you born and raised in New York? I know you went to SUNY Albany, right? Yeah. Undergrad? Yeah, that's pretty much the full story there. I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. My family's from the Caribbean, but I grew up in a um, brief stint going from Brooklyn to upstate New York. Okay. And I was from high school there. Yeah. Okay. So you did college in New York, went down, spent some time in the outskirts of Atlanta, went back up to New York. How did you find your way to D.C.? I imagine, you know, you were told at that one internship, if you want to change the world, don't work here. So you kind of left, you went out and did some other things. What brought you to the Washington, D.C. area? Was it a specific, was it Barack Obama's campaign? And that's when you were like, that's it? What's the story there? Yeah, I love the question. I was attracted to D.C. after a semester in Washington in undergrad. I talked my way into an honors program. We just had a reunion recently. It was great to see people in person after so, many, so much time in lockdown. I didn't love it then. I was an intern on Capitol Hill at a senator in New York's office. And I got the coffee and for a month and then quit that internship and worked for the shadow senator of D.C., on condo conversions and landlord-tenant law that he was working on. It was a small law firm, and and that's what got me into, you know, I was already very grassroots-oriented public school kid with a chip on his shoulder. I was very much oriented around the voice of the people type. But in D.C. at that time, I saw that 20-year-olds were running the country. was not attractive to me. You know, I was not impressed. What got me to D.C. was a decade plus later, working at that charter management organization, I got wind of Howard because the, the CEO of the firm that I was working for was a black man named Jones, James Stovall. And he very much inspired me. He was the, the second black male leader that I'd worked for in New York City that I was extremely impressed by. And I learned a lot from him. And Howard sort of rose to the radar. I had finished the public administration master's after working full-time. I did the program in the evening at Brew College and then I thought, I really would like to hire the most qualified person to run my startup. And at that time, I didn't think that I had the reps to be able to hold forth in spaces where a skill set would be required. And the MBA spoke to me. I was an unconventional business student. Everything I've told you doesn't scream MBA. But fortunately, I think we got to a place in the country where we want people to have that skill set who don't come from ivory tower 
pedigree heavy backgrounds and business, business, business. I was more of a social entrepreneur and social impact oriented. And Howard, shout out to Werner Sapel and some other folks who really paved the way for me and helped me navigate. Carlos Busky, my faculty advisor, our faculty mentor, and Allison Morgan. The list goes on and on. But yeah, Howard changed my life. Yeah. So with your journey, you've really explored so many different avenues. And I admire how action-oriented you seem to be. As soon as a decision is made or you've set your mind to something, it's all in. That is what you commit to. But with that commitment, obviously comes a lot of risk with rejection and setbacks. And you had mentioned, I don't keep bringing it up, but if you want to make change, don't come here. A lot of people reach those points and barriers and they're not able to push through. So I'm curious, like thinking back to those years, the really formative where you learn the most to set yourself up for where you're at now, what would you consider to be your biggest setback and what did you learn from it and how did you push through? It's my relationship with fear. If this were a blog post after this podcast, it would be how to change your relationship with fear and failure the fear and the the connection between fear and failure. I failed early on. I told you earlier about that LSAT experience and being a law school dropout. That very much led me to apologize for getting emotional here, but like I'm really comfortable with crying on camera. I cried my eyes out and I was 22 at the time. And I was at that pace. I had skipped a grade. I graduated from college early-ish. I had that honors thing that I had figured out and finessed. I could figure out how to talk my way into situations and overcome so much. And then when I got to the point where I feared failure and then it happened, I became fearless. I told you about knocking on doors in rural Georgia. There were barking dogs chasing me off the front porch. I am genuinely not afraid. So yeah, it sounds yeah. like you experiencing these things that are scary, whether it's to you or just to the general population, is what has given you the confidence to not be afraid anymore. So it's actually like going through the top thing. Well, yeah, I think that resonates with a lot of young people coming out of college, or maybe they're in their first job and they're considering a change and they're scared of failing or they're scared of making the wrong move or they're scared of going to law school or not going to law school, right? Like everyone has choices and a path. And I think your story resonates. Like you can become an entrepreneur and a CEO and a professor, even if you are, you know, a law school dropout, right? Right. And, you know, I want to highlight failing up, but also tightening feedback loops and having a sense of humility and being reflective. All of these pieces sort of add up to, well, if things don't work out, I do have information that's going to help me the next time. And I never had the fear of trying. So I guess that is also helpful. And I grew up on limited means. I know what it's like to make something out of nothing. So I think taking that along my journey has just provides that sense of confidence. I also have a relationship with God. I have a sort of divine conviction about me. So that provides me with a little bit of protection and peace in stormy times. I think it's interesting when you talk about your relationship with failure, because 
speaking from like personal experience, I relate to how failure played a role to motivate you. That fear of failure, not being an option. I have to succeed. I mean, that can push you so far in life. And that experience where you experience true and honest core failure, black and white failure, changed your relationship. So the motivation shifted from fear of failure to what? I'm curious, like how, like what specifically shifted in you to push you forward from that moment? Fear of a failure to what? Like how would I define the next step? Yeah. So interesting that the fear of failure was the motivator and what pushed you towards right. success. So I'm curious right. when you shifted after that experience, like what is your motivation now? Or what was the motivation once you realized failure wasn't something to be feared? Right, right. I did lean on my support network at that time, getting on the phone with people who trust and love me that supported me. My, my mentor needs to be mentioned. My mom needs to be mentioned, right? So having being super vulnerable and being able to go through a grieving of failure, right? I think during that process, there's some superpowers that sort of push in that being present to the moments of being disappointed is very human and important. And I think that was an empowering process for me. So that, like I did mention earlier, this sort of information and then that information being empowering enough to see that in other people and see or be able to attract more opportunities in the future because I'm coming from a place of being healed from that right? and pushing through it, but acknowledging that that's not simple and it's not overnight. It was definitely life-changing, but there are so many other occurrences, being robbed at gunpoint, not getting the job offer I may have wanted, not getting the investment capital, people saying no around the we are Marcus value proposition. There's a sense of belief that pushes underneath it because I've been through some stuff, right? I think the reps matter there. It's not just persistence or optimism or belief. It sounds like it's you've experienced things that are truly challenging. So you have perspective to say, I can make it through this because I've made it through these things in my past before. Yeah. And that's subconscious, right? Yeah. Like that's, this is that I walk around with every day. It's more so just trying to find, I talked about that obsessive optimism. I think that's where it comes from. It's like, eh, <laughs> pick the glasses half full on this one. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it sounds like Howard was a real, like, kind of turning point for you. Coming to D.C., going to Howard, having mentors. What was, like, that next chapter, right? Like, how did Howard shape your professional future and what you did after it? We have Howard alum who work here at Memory Blue. Mm. But how did it impact you specifically? Howard is a, an incredible platform for people like myself to leverage and attract resources. There's an abundance of opportunity at the university, but there is a, a difference between people who go after those and people who see them and they're sort of like there just to get by. And I think that's just university ecosystems. I think universities do a good job of attracting partnerships and you know capital. But I think what's special about HBCU and generally, but Howard in particular, is it was built and designed for people who have the initiative and are powerful innovators to take full advantage and make Howard what it is. 
I think it attracts that type of person. So it was easy for me in the MBA program to collaborate with other forward thinking young black professionals who are gifted, talented and black. I mean, the diversity of that also was a highlight for me. I got to know people from around the country who had different experiences than me. And I held the entrepreneur banner heavy because I knew that going in. And Howard was helpful for me to, I had an aligned purpose, but Howard elevated that and provided me with the sort of personal support to know that this could really happen and it will continue to happen if I stay on course. That's very special. And, you know, you are now a professor at Howard, so it feels like it came a little full circle probably for you. Talk about what you teach at Howard and what you're trying to instill in the students who go through your classes. Are you looking to join an industry with unlimited professional opportunity? It has never been a better time than right now to start a lucrative career in high-tech sales. Memory Blue has launched hundreds of careers for accomplished high-tech sales professionals from our offices coast to coast. And right now, we're in hiring mode. Working with us will accelerate your professional growth and place you on a path to success early in your sales career. You'll get world-class training through the Memory Blue Academy program and sharpen those skills with ongoing mentorship and coaching from our seasoned sales leaders. Memory Blue is an expansion mode and we have immediate openings in all of our offices. We have been named one of the fastest growing private companies in the US by Inc. Magazine for eight straight years. Our award-winning culture has been recognized by third-party industry groups as the best in the business, as we routinely add unbelievable benefits and rewards for our team. To learn more and apply to any of our openings, visit memoryblue.com careers today. I teach a course called Business Problem Solving, which is the quantitative and qualitative, qualitative brainchild of my faculty mentor, Dr. Carlos Busky. And he and I worked together. I was a teaching assistant there during my MBA program, which is how I ended up teaching it now. I sort of pitched a course around product management and management consulting and innovation. And then that kind of turned into, well, BPS is already here, do that. So I started with 35 students three years ago, and now I have 150. I teach a case study, a series of case studies that walk students through small, mid-size, and large businesses. I infuse a little bit of startup thinking, and in the past couple semesters, I've talked with them about investment models and how to teach them to be entrepreneurs and founders and business analysts, but also investors, because I, you know, I have a personal interest in, in attracting black and brown students to ownership and investment. So... You had mentioned earlier in our conversation about how originally when you were younger, you had this like aversion to the word sales and you teach business problem solving. You're a startup entrepreneur. How have you made your way to the other side? I hope the other side of thinking that way about sales, like walk us through that journey. Was there a moment as an entrepreneur or a CEO, like what kind of helped you bridge that gap? Oh, gosh. Love the loaded questions today. I will try. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it sales is such a, let me just talk about, maybe I can sort of back into the answer there in true, true MBA fashion. I think the sales piece is creating a transaction that provides value in exchange for money, right? 
money, we romantically and revenue, income, whatever, all that stuff, it comes down to a relationship of shared value. And I think the aversion to sales, right? This is going back to the Caroline conversations that, you know, it can become on tactics and on ethos. It can be distasteful for people who are movement builders, right? Who come from activism. And I am a representation of fusing all those things. I think the headline to this conversation could be activist entrepreneur. I am trying to change people's mindsets or mindset around an ed tech tool and what mentoring used to be. And in revolutionizing mentoring, sales is a very important part of our process to build relationships with the community of educators, right? That want our service and they need to think about that as we need to figure out how to create sustainable revenue patterns for that. They need to pay for it. And back to the question you asked me earlier about the union and what people were buying from our sales, people had to buy into investing their money into something that would create more value for them. And I spread that across, whether it was income, healthcare benefits, et cetera, all that, all that undercurrent is money moves in our economy and people value what they spend money on, right? So it's not, I love talking about this, particularly in the education and public sector because of partnerships, right? The partnerships person that a ed, education company, they're a salesperson. Business development, that's sales, right? All this, uh, it, the word, I think this is a great example, not unlike the union context. Let's not get distracted by the word and get a sense of what it really means. That's such a great point. Let's not get distracted by the word, but focus on what it really means. And I think that you are a great example of, you know, our headquarters is just outside of D.C. We have a lot of, you know, former people who went to school for politics or they were pre-law or they worked for on a campaign and they have social activism and they believe that they can make a social impact and they end up in technology sales. And I think you are that kind of living proof that you can be yeah. both. You can do both things. You can be a business person and you can make a difference and also give back too as a professor as well. So I think it's probably good for people to hear that they don't have to choose necessarily between maybe doing well for themselves and being in sales and still making a difference, especially if they can align themselves with the technology that really can make a difference. Further, that person defines it for them, right? I think- What do you mean by that? Right, so my approach to getting in deep relationships with our customers for shared impact because the product benefits youth, that then creates a cycle of impact for communities, right? But if people are thinking about sales as the prior versions is no different than teaching, by the way, the prior generation did something in one way and now you're coming in and you're thinking, okay, well, you did it this way. Let me learn from that and hold it as instructive. And now I'm going to do it the way that I think is more aligned with my personal ethos. And it's important for that person to define it for themselves. I don't define how Kristen does her job, right? So it, it's important for you as you reflect on your family, your historical context of where you came from, and what it looks like 
to have a one year job or a 10 year job or a hundred years of impact. And that's what we're not talking about, right? People ask me, Hey, what do you want to do here with this? And I take this borrowed it from Don Peebles and RDP three, his son, they don't develop in sustainable communities for four years. They don't develop for 40 years. They, their family has a 400 year plan, right? So it's, it becomes, if you're grounded in that mindset, you define what it looks like. If you have some sort of vision on what you're doing every day and how that creates sustainable impact longer term. So I, I guess we've successfully moved away from the sleazy sales conversation because <laughs> it, it doesn't have to look like that. Yeah, I agree. And we and colleges across the country are kind of doing the work to educate people that sales isn't that kind of sleazy misconception that maybe it was even 10, 15 years ago. But it is great to hear from you because you're not only a professor teaching the next generation of students, whether they go into sales or not, right? You're doing it and you're doing it with a startup and you're kind of walking the walk as well. And that's really important for people, especially in the DC area, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I love that. Thank you. And I'm flattered that you think of me that way. I think it's for somebody to come through my professional history that we talked about before, sometimes there weren't examples. And I think that's okay too. I think we've got to sort of normalize, hey, if there isn't an example, that doesn't mean that- It can't be done. Yeah, it can't be done. And for the women who are listening to this broadcast, and thank you, Kristen and Libby, for holding your space, that there's so much to be said about disruption and innovation and and defining it for yourself that there may not be a black male executive in sales within my immediate geography that I can reach when I'm in high school. And there may not have been that example for you, for you two guys in the spaces that you went, but that doesn't mean that you don't go after it. And it doesn't mean that you can't be the first or the second. Your mindset, I'll never forget when Chris Corcoran, he's the co-founder of Memory Blue. I was in a meeting with him and we were talking about a bunch of challenges and unpacking a lot and just kind of planning. And he looked at me and he goes, Libby, where some see challenge, others see opportunity. And I feel like you should have that painted on your wall somewhere because is it clear like in your story, you have to learn how to look at circumstances and situations and roadblocks to grow and learn from them. Because in discomfort and in failure, that is where true growth happens, which is why, in my opinion, getting experiences like what I'm sure you're sharing with your students in the classroom and what we do at Memory Blue, pushing our young talent out of their comfort zone to push forward with that growth. And I really connect and, and love that messaging and can sense that you value that too. 100, yeah, 100%. I do. That phrase I have echoed over and over and over again. And to take it to the next level, bring your suggestions along with your concerns. The orientation around problem, 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 right? And back to BPS, problems, business, problem solving. It can't be a problem if it don't have a solution. So we got to figure out what solving and iterating looks like and very connected to that, that prior dialogue around failure and fear of it. Definitely. So we've talked a lot about failure, a lot about setbacks. I want to flip the script and talk about 
some achievements. You know, if you could think back on your journey so far, what do you think Mm -hmm. was one of your biggest or best achievements that you're most proud of? The feedback from our first client where students were really excited about what we had, what we had created for them. And I had no idea was going to happen. And I talk about fear. <laughs> I kind of just blocked it out, took a nap, didn't think about you know, trying not to think about it. And then the students came back and the client came back and said, they love this. We, they want more. And that was an early college initiative at CUNY where we had some underachieving underclassmen, freshmen who were coming in, didn't score as high as they, they wanted to on grades. And what they needed to do was connect their academics to, to their shared stories because school didn't have relevance to them in a concrete way. And our content was very helpful in connecting, hey, here's what happens next. Here's what life looks like if you participate in this process actively. And here's what it looks like if you don't. That is super present for everybody on this call, but for middle school and high school students, early underachieving underclassmen, that was a monumental experience for them that we hope to replicate with all of our our young people and earlier, right? The idea is to try to get to them right when they start to feel like I'm doing this mundane thing, this teacher is telling me to do something, I don't really care. I'm upset about this. And the teacher doesn't know. We want to figure out how to connect, create the connective tissue in the academic environment, as well as out of school time. That's very exciting. Now, on the flip side of that, and I'm sure there are no shortage of opportunities in your past that you've used as lessons, but what was the hardest kind of lesson, or let's just call it failure? that you've taken with you and you've made adjustments because of it? Hardest failure. I'll speak to, and just to connect me to the product, we got some feedback from a investor that I later built a relationship, a really good relationship with. He was thinking about our content as, it was directly counter to what we thought about how students initially felt about it. And his response was, I couldn't give this to my kids because it's not engaging enough. And for me, in my classroom teaching experience, you know, I would get boys and girls would come to us, again, the the variety of staff with emotional distress challenges and being, building a relationship and being there for them and talking to them about what our lives look like was engaging for the students. But then we had a parent say, it's not engaging. And then we had another parent say, a parent teacher in a school in DC say, we don't want our children to be the next Tuskegee. So very offensive to me, given my story that I shared with you on both ends. One, it is engaging for a student who doesn't have a strong relationship with a black male mentor to hear their story. That's my fundamental premise, right? The next is, and that's engaging, right? And the next is that we're not testing on students and we don't have any ill intent on, you know, the content that we create. And there's also filtered filtration processes in place so that educators have eyes on what content goes in front of kids. In terms of learning from all that, as much as I, ah, I'm defensive over how that made me feel in those moments, What we want to do is invite people into the tent, right? 
and have them inform what we do. And we can create working groups by city, by school. There's so much we can do. And it goes back to that ethos of the conversation we were having earlier around organizing and relational experiences versus transactional ones, right? And we can create a relational experience with our clients such that, yes, we're exchanging value and we have capital going back and forth, but we also are listening, actively listening and tightening those feedback loops so that our product makes sense and is both engaging with new features, is still candid, but also we have controls in place that make everybody feel comfortable, but also create impact and, and moments of discomfort are information, good information. I think a lot of what you're talking to kind of points to one of the core values at Memory Blue, which is every single sales rep that comes here has to be able to take feedback has to be able to like receive feedback, learn from it. Coachability is such a core, important trait for our reps to have because if they are too set in their ways and they are too committed to their process that they've already determined is right, they have nothing to learn and they can't grow. So coachability, I, I think that's an absolute core, basic fundamental value of, of successful people. And my question is, do you have maybe two or three other qualities that you see in people in your life or successful students that you taught when it comes to the idea of success? What are some qualities of good examples of successful people? Integrity, right? Intrinsic motivation. I would definitely highlight communicative people I'm drawn to. I was raised that way, so I gel really well with folks who can think out loud, but also in a in I think with my management effort and leadership style is to create spaces for them to feel comfortable doing that without consequence, right? So I think that's sort of shared, right? It's not all on them. It's what we do as an organization to create a culture for those people to thrive if they have a relationship with adversity that they have clarity about, that they're aligned and they're motivated on their own. They have their own definition of what impact looks like so that we can collaborate and figure out what that, with what we can do together. Yeah. Qualities of successful people. That's, I think that's good for now. I'm sure I could keep talking about that, but I think those three are, are really strong. Okay. We're going to hit you with a little game we like to play, which is <laughs> answer the first thing that comes to your mind. These could be a little off the wall, but let's just go with it. So okay. if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world saying anything you wanted to say, where would it be and what would it say? <laughs> it would say there's opportunity in every challenge. <laughs> and it would say Wham Academy is just the beginning. Cool. All right, that's good. Okay, a little bit of like, background, like this is kind of like your ethos and a little bit about your business. Okay. I got it. Yep, yep. I like it. Okay. Who is your biggest influence in your life and why? All the, throughout all the years, who's made the most impact? All the years. You're going to create a competition. I know, but I <laughs> you don't want that kind I of can't smoke. Hold it against you. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a question I, re I almost refuse to answer. I'm going to start listing people. <laughs> my mom, my mentor, my father, Dr. Cornell West, that I had the pleasure to meet when I was a junior in college, former President Obama, our favorite president. My immediate 
support network. Tommy Ogundimo, I would say my grandfather, my grandmother, who's 102 years old and has survived a pandemic and was wow. born in 19. <laughs> my grandfather, who I was compared to when I was a child and was a most generous girl dad, raised my mom and my two aunts. He's no longer with us, but his example informs the type of person I want to be uh, throughout my life. I told you you're going to go deep. <laughs> all right. All right. My, my kids the students who are now in eighth grade. I know. <laughs> we went way back. <laughs> I love it. All right. My question is, what advice do you have for the students in your classroom or just young people in general that right now have a visceral reaction to sales? We're clear <laughs> in sales. Yeah, yeah. Advice I would give them is figure out what kind of skill set you want to develop and see if sales fits that. If your personality aligns with growth campaigns and uh, creating value in the world as big as you can dream, sales is likely a place where you should get some skills. You should develop a skill set that I think is going to be transferable into anything that you do. So it's a path worth taking because you're going to learn a lot about people and yourself. And I would say that is a tremendous opportunity that arguably is not repeatable in other types of work. That's amazing. Well, on that note, we will wrap. Christopher King, we've enjoyed having a chat with you today. I think your path and everything you've done and accomplished already in your career and in your life is very inspiring. I'm sure to a lot of the people at Howard, but definitely to a lot of our listeners as well. And we're very honored that you are a memory blue client. So thank you for trusting us with your business as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's going very well. And I have nothing but great things to say about Ellie. I will name her out loud. Awesome. She is fantastic. My team is continually telling me how great the experience is. So thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me as a client. Thank you. If your sales team struggles to hit quota or generate qualified leads, Memory Blues Academy Prospecting Principles Training Program is the solution. Great sales training is time intensive and requires continuous guidance from sales experts. In this six-week course, our world-class facilitators use a hands-on learning approach to turn raw talent into industry-leading salespeople. From building targeted outreach lists to strategically overcoming objections, the key prospecting skills taught here create the foundation for strong sales performance. Our proven training cuts SDR ramp time in half and increases quota attainment by 89%. New cohorts launch twice per month. Head to memoryblue.com slash academy to see upcoming dates and secure your seat today.